Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa and Tales to Terrify. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, wherever you're listening from. This is Farfetch Fables. Welcome to show number 91. Your host for this week is Mark Zanfordino, and I generally spend my time stitching the show together. Nicola is in needing of a well-deserved break, so I'm going to fill in for her this week. And speaking of this week, we take you on a tour of the very Wild West via two stories from the collection Dead Man's Hand, an anthology of the Weird West, edited by John Joseph Adams, starting with a short story of the same title by Christy Yant. Christy is a science fiction and fantasy writer, associated publisher of Lightspeed and Nightmare magazine, and editor of the Women Destroy Science Fiction special issue of Lightspeed, which won the 2015 British Fantasy Award for Best Anthology. Her fiction has appeared in print and on the internet in such places as Year's Best Fantasy and Science Fiction, 2011, Armored, Analog, Beneath Ceaseless Skies, io9, Wired.com, and Science Fiction World. She lives on the central coast of California with two writers, one editor, two dogs, three cats, and a very small manticore. For more information about Lightspeed's special double issues devoted to showcasing the work of underrepresented and marginalized creators, visit DestroySF.com. The story is read to us by Seth Williams. Seth is the avatar of a three-kilometer sentient starship that is parked, probably uncomfortably, close to the third planet. Surprisingly, he has not yet been discovered. He is very happy that the inhabitants have discovered enough technology so that he can communicate in this limited fashion. Any communications can be directed to theboojum.org. And now, Dead Man's Hand, by Christy Yant. Deadwoods, Dakota Territory, 1876 The whisper of the cards as they're shuffled is a deception, a ritual enacted to make you believe that your hand will be fairly dealt. The fly that lands on the whiskey glass by the dealer's hand means the deck is cut three cards deeper in than it would have been. 
The hand you're dealt is not the hand that you would have been dealt a moment before. Your cards are dealt anew every moment of every day. So are the cards of the other players. Black Hills Weekly Pioneer A. W. Merrick Deadwood, Dakota Territory, August 2, 1876 J.B. Wild Bill Hickok shot dead at the Number 10 Saloon. A somber mood has gripped the town of Deadwood tonight, with news that notable gunman and showman Wild Bill Hickok has been shot and killed. A shot was heard through the bustling community at 4.15 this afternoon, drawing a crowd of the concerned and curious to the door of the Number 10 Saloon, owned by Mr. Nuttall and Mann. The body of James Butler Hickok was discovered therein, dead of a gunshot wound to the head. Local miner, Jack Broken Nose McCall, approached Hickok from behind, drew his pistol, and fired the bullet that instantly took Hickok's life. McCall has claimed the act was a matter of blood debt, Hickok having killed his own brother in Kansas. Hickok was well known amongst the frequenters of Number 10 to always sit with his back to the wall and facing the door lest enemies made during a notable life on the plains exploit a lack of vigilance. On this day, it is said that the only seat available at the table faced away from the door, and it was thus that McCall was able to enact his craven deed. The scene of the murder was one of solemn reflection and practical determination, as the saloon proprietors and townspeople of Deadwood sought to put the shooting behind them. After Hickok's remains had been cleared away, there remained only a grim still life to mark the event. On the floor, beside the seat lately occupied by Wild Bill, lay the dead man's hand, two pair, aces and eights, a good hand, this reporter is told, but one which brought him no luck at all. Black Hills Weekly Pioneer Gazette, Albert Merrick, Deadwood Gulch, D.T., March 1, 1877. Wild Bill James Hickok hanged for murder. After a decade of outwitting the law, no amount of ill-gotten gold could tip the scales of justice in favor of the legendary outlaw and gunman James Butler Hickok, best known by the infamous moniker Wild Bill. His last ride ended in Yankton, Dakota Territory, at the end of a rope. On August 1, 1876, the Bella Union Saloon was the scene of violence as a man was callously murdered over a debt in the amount of $2.50. The night had proceeded in the usual fashion until it was learned that local miner Jack McCall, sometimes known as Sutherland, was unable to cover a hand lost to Hickok. Despite a promise to pay the following day, Hickok reportedly grew incensed and bellowed, a man not never overbet his hand. That ain't no way to play cards. Captain William Massey, who had also been at the table, attempted to intervene, despite warnings from the bystanders. I told him not to get in Bill's way when he gets like that, Mr. Tom Miller, proprietor, recalled. But he wouldn't listen. He'd been an officer in the Union Army once, and I think that stayed with him. Hickok drew his gun and aimed it at McCall's heart. Once a sharpshooter of world renown... Hickok's sight had reportedly been failing in recent years, driving him off the trail and into the saloons to make a meager living as a card player. His first shot missed McCall entirely, and the bullet instead struck Captain Massey, who Dr. McKinley says will carry it till his dying day. 
Wild Bill's second shot aimed true, however, and McCall was killed instantly. Hickok effected an escape by way of a rear door to the property and the theft of a horse. It was thought that with no sheriff yet elected in Deadwood, the notorious outlaw had once again escaped justice, but he was apprehended a week later in the city of Laramie, Wyoming, by one Deputy Marshal Balcombe. On the night of the murder, this reporter made a survey of the scene, and there discovered the very cards that had cost an honest man his life. McCall's losing hand had been scattered across the table amid the other discarded hands. But in the place Hickok had been seated, five cards remained fanned out in the characteristic display of arrogance. Not being well versed in the complexities of games of chance, this reporter consulted Mr. Mann on the likelihood of Hickok's cards winning the game. "'It's a good hand, and hard to beat,' Mann said. "'But I hope I don't see those cards coming my way any time soon.' With a shudder, he added, "'That's a dead man's hand.'" Deadwood Weekly Pioneer Albert M. Werrick Deadwood Pines, August 5, 1876 Heroism in the Black Hills It was civilian justice in the form of local businessman Bill Sutherland, who, with a single bullet, put an end to the threat of violence that Deadwood has lived under since the infamous outlaw J.B. Wild Bill Hickok arrived in town. Uncowed by Hickok's brazen demeanor and deadly reputation, Mr. Sutherland strode into the Progressive Hall Saloon at 4.15 p.m. on Wednesday past and took vengeance for the death of his brother, one Jack Sutherland, also known as McCall. Witnesses claim that Mr. Sutherland drew his gun and said only, "'Damn you! Take that!' before the report from the gun echoed through the town. Mr. Sutherland immediately turned his weapon over to Ed Durham, proprietor, and waited peacefully while a miner's jury was assembled. Deadwood, as yet still being without an elected sheriff. Mr. Durham, responsible for restoring the scene to order, has told this reporter that in the aftermath he gathered the cards from the table, with the intention of presenting them to Mr. Sutherland upon his inevitable acquittal, in token for his heroism. When asked what the dead man had been holding, he told this reporter that he would only reveal the contents of the dead man's hand to Mr. Sutherland, the hero of Black Hills. Hickok's remains will be returned to his widow in Cheyenne. No services are to be held in Deadwood. May God have mercy on his soul. Black Hills Chronicle Weekly A. William Merrick Deadwood, Dakota Territory August 5, 1876 Local miner dead in shootout at Number 10 Saloon. On the afternoon of August 2, the fragile piece of Deadwood Gulch was broken by gunfire, and afterward a man lay dead. Drawn to the scene by the sound of the gunshot, this reporter was approached by Captain James Will Massey, who emerged from the saloon in some distress, cradling his bloody hand. "'Wild Bill shot me!' he exclaimed. The accusation was happily learned to be unfounded, though he can be forgiven for his confusion in the face of pain and violence." Inside the saloon, the scene was a gruesome one. Witnesses say that a game of poker was underway when local miner Jack Crooked-Nosed McCall suddenly rose from his seat. McCall, under the heavy influence of drink, was heard to say, Damn you! Take that! 
as he aimed his pistol at renowned lawman and gunslinger James Wild Bill Hickok. Before McCall could pull the trigger, Hickok, with reflexes honed on the prairie as a scout for the Union Army, drew his own weapon, and with the marksmanship that is his claim to fame, put a single shot through McCall's crossed eye. McCall's gun discharged as he fell to the floor. This led Charles Rich, also seated at the table, to draw in self-defense, and in the confusion fired his own weapon, resulting in the injury sustained by Captain Massey. "'It was over in no more than a blink of the eye,' said Carl Mann, one of the saloon's proprietors. Hickok, in full view of this reporter, stood and swept up the cards he had held moments before, along with the unturned hole card, and tucked them inside his vest pocket. "'A souvenir.' to send my wife, he explained, referring to his wife of seven months, Agnes Lake Hickok, lately of Cheyenne. He paused and turned over the cards that lay at McCall's place at the table. Two pair, aces and eights. That right there is a hand you don't want, he said, a dead man's hand. Author's Note the dead man's hand, as it is known today, is comprised of aces and eights, but there have been as many hands by that name as the coward Jack McCall had alibis and aliases. In the earliest reference to aces and eights, rather than a full house of jacks and tens, or jacks and sevens, appeared in 1900, and the phrase wasn't connected to Hickok until the 1920s, nearly fifty years after his death. Rarely, if ever, does anyone get a do-over in this world, and when we do, there's no guarantee that the new outcome will be a better one. Case in point, Wild Bill plays his hand four different ways in this story, and only once does he score an ending that he's happy with. We play the literal and figurative cards that are dealt to us, and whether or not they pay off often depends on luck, just as much as it may skill. Our second story for the week is Never Sleeps by Fred Van Lente. Fred is the number one New York Times best-selling and award-winning writer of such comic books as Archie and Armstrong, Action Philosophers, and, with Andrew Foley, Cowboys and Aliens. His other titles include Resurrectionist, The Comic Book History of Comics, The Incredible Hercules, with Greg Pak, Taskmaster, Marvel Zombies, one of my personal favorites, and The Amazing Spider-Man. He lives in Brooklyn with his wife, playwright Crystal Skillman, and some mostly ungrateful cats. Fred loves hearing from readers online via the links in our show notes. Never Sleep was shortlisted for the Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy in 2015. It is read for you today by Tim Maroney, who has an endless fascination with ideas and inventions, the things that keep life spicy and interesting. He believes everyone's got a tale to tell and enjoys playing music, mostly on guitar, and learning new things like podcasting. He's been on four of seven continents and has seen some of the wonders of our Earth. While in the Navy, he earned the rare and coveted Dual Snake Pliskin Award for escaping from both New York and L.A., although they were two of the five submarines he served on. Not too bad for a guy from a small town in north-central Florida. And now, Never Sleeps by Fred Van Lent. Monument Valley, near Navajo Territory, northbound on the Northwest Pacific Express, 120 years after the awakening. There were three Pinkertons. 
There were always three. One was a white man, one was black, and the other was a celestial. They may have been something else before, but now they were Pinkertons. Same brownish-gray tweed suits, same bowler hats, same obese caterpillar mustaches lurking below their noses. Simon Leslie was playing Hold'em in the parlor car when the train slowed between two mesas in Monument Valley with a puff of steam and a sigh. Through the window he saw the Pinkertons get off and march in a flawless triangular phalanx up the nearest red brick ridge. From the looks of it, they emerged from the express car in the center of the train. Maybe the railroad kept them stacked in crates with the sacks of parcels in the safe, where they laid, stiff-necked, their tattooed eyes open and unblinking, waiting to be needed. They were nicknamed Never Sleeps for a reason. Simon Leslie knew. It had not been so long since he was one of them. You bet. See, come on. You're growing cobwebs. The future trader who got on with Leslie in New Orleans wasn't nearly as fun as he thought he was. Leslie reflexively looked at his hand. It was still the ten and page of pentacles. The turn had just been set down, so the eight of wands, the tower, the empress, and now the queen of cups showed on the table. He had a modest, gut-shot straight draw going, so he bet half the pot. Christ on a crutch, will you look at that? said another player, a fat lawyer taking his pretty young third wife to the west coast for their honeymoon. Everyone looked out the window. An array of Navajo warriors lined the ridge astride soot-colored ponies, the feathers tied to their spears aflutter in the breeze. They looked like they had materialized out of thin air, but Simon spotted the shaman among them, an emaciated crone wearing nothing but a cloak of raven feathers, shaking a gnarled rattle of bone. No doubt they had been standing there the whole time, cloaked in spirit, awaiting the train and the Pinkertons. They're... they're not going to attack, are they? asked the lawyer's wife, a short, befreckled redhead, who had been giving Leslie smiles he probably should have been ignoring the whole game. He'd given her smiles in return he definitely should not have. He didn't have time for it. Not this trip. They wouldn't dare, the futures man said. There's been peace with the Four Corners tribes for a generation. There was a time, not so far distant, at the beginning of the awakening, that the Navajo and the Ute and the Zuni and the Hopi would have hungered for war along with all the indigenous and oppressed peoples of five continents. The ancestor worshippers and dream walkers and totem bearers thought they could feel the yoke and heel of the European easing from their collective necks. Once all the spirits and spells from the days before the Age of Reason returned in a joyous shriek to the world. The native had been in touch with supernature far longer than the colonizer. Their touch with the invisible had not atrophied from millennia of smelting and steam engines and monotheism. The awakening, to them, was the first day of their inevitable return to power. How wrong they were. They forgot how adept those who seize power are at retaining it, no matter how outre the circumstances. Within a few years, the enchantments and sorceries long suppressed by European churches thrust back into prominence and were ruthlessly employed by those already in charge. There would always be those maddening fools who love the bosses, who love a firm, guiding hand on their nape and revel in the harsh disciplining of those who try and buck it. The Never Sleeps were among the most feared of these servants. Though outnumbered by stony-faced braves twelve to one, the trio marched unafraid up the ridge to the lead Navajo warrior, resplendent in buffalo horns, to receive what they believed, without any hesitancy or doubt, was always rightfully theirs, 
Simon Leslie said. What they're doing now is avoiding a war. The poker players watched as the Braves parted so two squaws could deliver to the Pinkertons a handcuffed, hooded figure and accompanying baggage. Is that... The red-headed newlywed squinted at the captive. Is that a woman? Not just any woman, Leslie said. That's Nikola Tesla. His fellow players turned and gaped at him. Not the atomist, the descendant of... of you know... him? Simon Leslie nodded. The savages were harboring her laboratory under reservation? That's where she was hiding out? Since the raid on her experimental cyclotron in Colorado Springs, Nikola Tesla had been the West's most wanted science criminal, with a million-dollar bounty on her head. The Four Corners chieftains no doubt delighted in frustrating the will of the Bureau of Animist Affairs by hiding her. Finally, though, the headman competing for tribal supremacy had ratted her out, able to sow enough uneasiness with the elder matriarchs about the risk of death raining down on them from Washington for the sake of some white woman practicing electrical heresy that was as taboo to their faith as it was to that of the hated Federals. Fortunately for her, someone in the Bureau had, in turn, leaked news of her capture and details of the prisoner exchanged to Simon Leslie's comrades in the White City. Poor girl! The fat lawyer tutted as the Pinkertons enveloped their prisoner in the center of their phalanx and returned to the train. They're taking her to San Francisco, no doubt, to be burned at the stake. Or shipped to the prison mines of Alaska Territory, Simon Leslie said. Ain't you just a font of useful information, the futures trader said. I don't rightly call what you said you did for a living. No? As he said it, the trader slapped down the river card, the nine of swords. He had made his straight. I'm a gambler. The men at the table blanched. The redhead grinned. All in? Simon Leslie grinned back. Once the Never Sleeps were safely on board, the twisting cord-like dragon towing the train spread its wings with a snort and a roar and launched itself back into the shimmering ley line coursing across the horizon and beat its leather wings toward California. The red-headed bride's name was Marion, and she had spent her whole life until her wedding day in Lafayette, Louisiana. She told Simon her new husband made love to her like it was a necessity he tried to get over with as soon as possible, for she stood between him and sleep. When she stole into Leslie's private sleeper berth, he pulled her nightgown over her head and left it there while he kissed every inch of her freckled skin, and once she was covered in goosebumps, he picked her up by her bare thighs and lay her on the tiny bed and made sure that she knew she was a rare delicacy to be savored and adored and pleasured. She was not a means. She was an end. She bit her long red hair to keep from crying out. After, he thought maybe he should wake her and send her back to her snoring husband for her own safety. But she looked so peaceful lying in his bed, he couldn't bear to. Instead, he opened his trunk and popped open the false bottom to reveal the clockwork chrysalis. He had waited long enough. They would be nearing the point in the Sierra Madre, according to his guidebook and compass where the Donner Party had made a miserable repast of itself all those years ago. He had chosen this as his disembarkation point for a reason. The chrysalis creaked like an old battleship when he peeled it over his naked body, most of it thick rawhide that somehow felt no heavier than a thin layer of oil on his skin. The boots slipped silently over his feet, and he pulled the hood down over his head. He flipped through the lenses of the brass goggles over his eyes and set them to the widest aperture. Within moments, the great proboscis of the filter over his mouth began straining his breath, bringing only the purest air into his lungs, free of the stink of enchantment. 
The Atomist of White City originally designed the chrysalis to prevent any skin, scales, or stray hair from leaving agents' bodies while conducting anti-sorcery operations, to say nothing of blood or saliva. Everything the body shed or excreted could be turned against it by the enemy. Scryers could find you anywhere in the world. Diviners could predict your next move with unerring accuracy. Necromancers could cast sudden death on you from hundreds of miles away. But soon the White City realized that the suit could be so much more. Leslie snapped the gun braces over his arms and strapped the brass duck's foot pistols onto them. Combustion-based projectile technology, simple possession of which had been a capital crime for nearly one hundred years. He stepped gingerly over the naked woman in his bed to the sill, slid the glass open, and pulled himself onto the roof of the train car, closing the window with his heel before the whistle of wind could rouse Marion from her slumber. The train cleaved through the snow-capped peaks and rolling carpets of pine with nary a sound, except the occasional sheet on a clothesline flap of the Li Ying Long Dragon's wings. The night air lasted him, but even though he felt as naked and vulnerable as a newborn, he did not feel any cold. The paucity of oxygen at this altitude made his lungs clench, but after a few seconds of crouching atop the sleeper car, carefully listening to his heartbeat, he brought the rhythm of his breath under control. The brass electrodes studying the inside of the chrysalis helped greatly with that. They captured his bioelectric field and redistributed it inside the suit, where it could not be hijacked by mediums or magic users. Such a manipulation of the psychic lacuna led to depression and erratic behavior and all but the most mentally disciplined operatives. Simon Leslie had to spend a year mastering meditation techniques, all but unheard of in the West, to endure the sense of insignificance and hopelessness that enveloped him once he cloaked himself in the chrysalis's self-contained, absolute reality. He was cut off from self-deception, unmoored from myth. The call of perception was ripped away, leaving nothing but what truly is, independent of him, in its stead. Unless his mind correlated most or all of its contents, the experience could crush his soul by convincing him in an instant that he did not have one. On the plus side, the chrysalis also rendered him completely immune to magic. He bounded from car to car, innumerable, highly illegal, microfilament wires crisscrossing the chrysalis turned his second skin into a giant eardrum, vibrating it through his souls he could hear snoring widows, the squeak of hip flask being unscrewed, the tinkle of lantern glass, a parlor car, then clatter of plates, the laughter of dishwashers trying to outmock each other, the dining car. Then he bounded to the next. He heard silence beneath his feet. This would be the express car he had seen the Pinkertons return to when the train stopped in Navajo country. He flexed the tendons in his wrists, rotating the guns that crowned him until, with a pneumatic hiss from a catch pressed in his palm, a tiny projectile sprang out of the multi-barreled pistol and stuck in the car roof. He hopped back to the car edge as the clockwork timer on the top whirred to detonation. The split second, right before, his breath catching, pulse racing like a thoroughbred, thrilling to the randomness of life without thaumaturgy, the keenness of a skate down the razor's edge without horoscopes that definitively told him what the next day would bring, without love enchantments to spark others' desire, without the certainty of Majory's manipulation of reality brought, the joys of not knowing. This was why he risked his life and the eternal servitude of his immortal spirit to serve the White City. He hadn't really lied to his fellow poker players when he told them he was a gambler. He just didn't name the game he played. Leslie leapt through boots first with the last cascade of wood and shingle. 
Inside, the Pinkertons were ready for him. Their heads had transformed beneath their bowler hats into blazing phosphorus eyeballs, a metaphor made flesh, embodying the advertisements of the detective agency prior to the awakening. We never sleep. They blasted him as one with a ghostly fire that would have ignited anyone else into a screaming bonfire of agony. But he wore the chrysalis, with the shaded lenses snapped over his goggles, so he didn't even get spots in his eyes. He leapt toward the nearest eye and flicked his wrist a different direction, and twin Tamil Katar blades shot out of the brass braces. With the left dagger, he sliced through a retina the width of his face and was already moving away as gelatinous white burst out of it, turning and spinning and burying the right dagger up to its hilt in the chest of the second eye next to him. The third eye, intuiting further attacks against the chrysalis would be useless, turned a stream of his spirit fire onto the floor of the car blowing a hole in it nearly as big as the one Leslie's explosives had blown in the roof. Though the chrysalis rendered him immune to magic, those people and things outside it were still very much immune. But Leslie pinwheeled sideways away from the eruption and unloaded the explosive rounds from the fan-like pistols into the eye's midriff. He was dead before the blowback smashed him against the wall. Nikola Tesla sat on the railroad company's safe, amidst bags of mail inside the express car cage handcuffed to the bars, hood still over her head. Leslie dug the keys out of the jacket of the Pinkerton slumped against the wall and opened the door. When he pulled the bag off her head, she sneered at him. Edison Stooge. Slight Serbian accent, darkly beautiful. Same knowing, baleful gaze as her famed ancestor. She spat on the floor at his feet. Leslie groaned through the small speaker set in the front of his mask. Ms. Tesla, I'm nobody Stooge. Dr. Tesla. Mr. Thomas Edison may have founded the White City, but we operate solely on the universal principle of returning science to the world. We should be allies. Your Edison publicly recanted science to save his neck. My great-granduncle did not, and he burned. Your secret society was founded by a thief and a coward, and nothing good will come of it. He jangled the keys in front of her. I take it then I am too morally compromised for you to accept my help? She pouted. She was beautiful. Go ahead, she said turning her face away. She sprung to her feet as soon as he unlocked the cuffs and opened the medium-sized steamer trunk in the corner of the cage. Leslie recognized it as one of the pieces of baggage the Navajo had turned over with her. I'm afraid we need to leave your things behind, Leslie said. Not this. She removed the long mahogany rifle with a steel sphere at the end of a filigreed brass barrel. What do you have there? An apparatus for generating, intensifying, and amplifying electrical force in free air. Ah. A lightning gun, Dr. Tesla said slowly. Yes, thank you. I know what a lightning gun is. How should I know? I am sure you've received all sorts of erroneous notions from the followers of that degenerate Edison. Ma'am, the War of the Currents ended over a century ago. This is no time to declare that hostilities between your family and the Edisons have resumed. We have mutual enemies to unite against. She sniffed. It would appear I have no choice but to accept the aid of my inferiors. Very well, then. Take me to your white city. I have no doubt your clock punchers and patent lawyers will benefit greatly from someone with genuine scientific knowledge. No doubt, Leslie said dryly. He helped her through the hole in the roof, then hoisted himself up. As soon as the mountain air hit him, he was brought up short by the cracking of the wireless in his ear. The white city always maintained radio silence during delicate operations such as this. See, see, can you hear me? Our three on the train went blind, so you must be there. Say hello to your old friend. Morgan Ash's deep mahogany laugh froze Leslie's blood. Ash was the first ward boss in Manhattan, 
his former employer. Possession of a wireless radio technology is a Class A felony, which carries a sentence of up to 20 years in prison, Simon Leslie said. Tesla looked quizzically at him, but he held up a finger for the explanation to wait. Ah, but that's right. The rules don't apply to you, do they? He could almost hear Ash, ensconced in his suite in the Dakota Hotel overlooking Central Park, a cigar in whichever hand wasn't holding the receiver. For your information, see, I am not violating out of sacred ether with electromagnetic radiation in order to transmit sound, but rather a spell cooked up by the boys in applied thaumaturgy that resonates with your transceiver in much the same way. All this talk of ether was, of course, pseudoscientific nonsense, but with magic the bosses had the power to force their pseudoscience on the world and make it true. I'm afraid I'm not at liberty to chat, Morgan. Kind of in the middle of something. So you are. But I don't believe you're quite aware of what that something is. The chuckle again. The leak inside the Bureau of Animist Affairs that told the White City where the handoff for Dr. Tesla would be and which train? The source of that leak would have been me. Simon Leslie stood up straight as a roar echoed from the rear of the train. He looked down to the caboose and saw a second dragon, a ying-long wang, an enormous purple-blue creature with a long funnel-like snout as it oared its sea turtle flippers through the borealis of the ley line. Pinkertons covered its leather-plated shell, enormous head-eyes glowing beneath bowler hats. The sky above them rippled and flashed, and an airship descended from the clouds. A gondola swarming with Pinkertons hanging from a sinewy pan-ying-lung, fur-like licks of white fire straggling from its jaw. Dr. Tesla grunted, and Leslie looked at her, and was surprised to find her smiling. "'You have fallen for a trap, Edison man,' she said. "'I was just bait. They want your chrysalis.'" Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The never-sleeps poured over the turtle dragon and dropped from the sky, spitting gouts of white flame and swirling sigils of burning gold. They were mostly humans, but he saw she and dwarves mixed along with them too, 
and that made Simon Leslie think of the homestead strike in which Morgan Ash had ordered him, as leader of the local Never Sleeps, to summon the dwarves' ancestral enemies from their former home in the Nine Worlds, the monstrous two-headed Etten. The giants had scooped up diminutive miners six at a time and popped them into razor-lined mouths and crunched down on them like popcorn. After that day of horror, Simon Leslie resolved to find a better way to live, or die trying. Fortunately, the White City found him. But now it seemed like he would die anyway. I would strongly advise giving yourself up, see? Morgan Ash purred in his ear. Ain't no shame in it. We sent numbers enough to crush the four corners, much less one traitor and one extremely misguided Slav bitch. Tesla yanked back on the lever of her lightning gun and cried out a curse in Serbo-Croatian. He thought he heard, as blue tines crackled out of the metal sphere, zigzagging through the night, and finding the Pinkertons wherever they were, with the unerringness of falcons, and stiffening them with electric fire. Seeing as how we have history, you and I, Ash rambled on, I promise you, once you get to the tombs, the Inquisitors won't torture you too much. Sure, the judge will order a requisite number of hexes of excruciating pain. But beyond that, the severity of the interrogation is largely up to the discretion of the presiding officer, which, just so you know, his voice dropped to a whisper, will be me, regardless of what copper's name is actually on the register. I'll only ask you a few names, Ash continued. Five? The main animist leaders. Where the White City is. How you've managed to keep an entire hive of damn heathens invisible from our scrying mirrors. And of course, our experimental thaumaturgians will be going to town on your leather jumpsuit. They'll crack it. Trust me. They're smarter than a barrel full of Teslas. If they can't find a spell to get past the Chrysalis's defenses, shit, they'll write one. Don't think they won't. Down! Leslie cried, and Tesla ducked dutifully, allowing him to blow the Pinkerton who had just landed behind her off the train, with a booming round to the chest. The cloud dragon overhead had managed to overtake the dragon pulling the train and was dropping off Never Sleeps to outflank them. They could not survive a two-front war. Leslie leapt forward, grabbing a protesting Tesla, and bounded back to the express car, dropping through the hole he'd made so they could regroup behind the imposing iron safe. This doesn't look promising, Leslie said in an offhand way. He could barely hear himself over the throbbing pulse in his neck. He nodded at Tesla's silently steaming lightning gun. Busted? Bite your tongue. Overheated. Give it ten seconds of cooldown. The roof erupted in a roar of unearthly flame that blackened and ripped whole chunks off in plumes of embers. Within seconds it would be gone, and they would be fully exposed. The man and the woman looked at each other. Their short destinies were written plain on each other's faces. Then the woman had a spark. Your chrysalis. It self-generates a localized bioelectric field, yes? She feverishly snapped open compartments and undid screws on the lightning gun. I'm generating the field. The suit just keeps it in continuous circulation in a closed system. Hey, don't break that down. We can still use it. No, we can't. We need to eliminate more of our enemies at once. She removed a small metal box from the side of the gun. We'll use the cavity resonator. It can expand the chrysalis's bioelectric field. But the field is self-contained. How can you attach your resonator to it? We need to breach the... No! Listen to me. The first rule of the White City is you never breach the chrysalis. She slapped him. He barely felt it inside his leather mask, but she kept talking. That's Edison talking. Use your imagination, man. Before he could respond, the flaming roof of the express car collapsed and the room filled with never sleeps. 
He grabbed her by the wrist and pulled her through the far door into the adjoining car. Passengers already awakened by the sounds of chaotic battle all around them began screaming once they saw the mosquito-like proboscis of the chrysalis. They rushed to fill the aisle, to get away from them. The fugitives managed to hop and weave around the masses, but the column of Pinkerton slammed into them, forestalling pursuit. Morgan Ash radioed. Hellfire and damnation, boy. Don't you know when your bell's been rung? I promised my kids I'd read them a bedtime story before their nanny puts them to sleep. Through two more sleeper cars and a combine they ran, to burst through into the first and final car, little more than an open platform in the center of which the driver sat in the lotus position. He was the Celestial, of course, communing with the dragon in a single conjoined mind to keep its simple lizard brain calm and pliant. The Celestial sprang to his feet when the intruders burst through the door and launched into a high-pitched call in Cantonese for fire, the element of Greater Yang. But Simon Leslie's scissor kicked him sideways off the train before the third syllable. The Chinese hit a fir tree by the side of the ley line and dropped like a stone to the ground. Nikola Tesla crouched by his waist with a utility knife pressing down on the chrysalis, probing for a good place to make the incision. We are doing this, yes? He was taken back when she looked up at him for his response. It was the first time she had solicited permission from him. Perhaps it was the first time in her life. What about the other passengers? he asked. What about them? Simon Leslie shook his head. It was insane. The whole thing was insane. Go ahead, he said. He groaned as if it were his own flesh cut when Tesla made an incision in the chrysalis just above his pelvic bone to remove an electrode from its underside. This she inserted in the box-shaped resonator, which she then hooked to his belt. From inside the second skin, he could feel the nature of himself alter, the breath caught in his throat. Though the bioelectric field was invisible, as he pulled Nikola Tesla closer to him, he could feel it envelop her, her cheeks suddenly flushed looking at him, and he knew she felt the same way too, a sudden conjoined intimacy, not born of word, deed, or desire, but real all the same, and it moved both of them deeply. A small ladder led to the ceiling hatch of the engine, and from there they hopped onto the muscular ripple of the dragon's back. Its scales were cold and shiny, and impossibly smooth. He lost its footing several times, until he started to grab onto the ridges of the lizard's vertebrae and used them as handholds to pull himself along its back. A Li-Ying lung was mostly a serpent, with two vestigial limbs dangling on either sides of its undulating expanse. Uncoupled from the mind of its human handler, the dragon huffed and roared with irritation at the two pests skittering across its skin, amber eyes roiling with confusion. But the leather harness attaching it to the great bulk of the train prevented it from flexing its back and hurling the interlopers off. Leslie reached the base of the lizard's head and peered over its snout at the ley line coursing beneath it, a gently spinning cylinder of infinitesimally narrow beams of blue, gold, and green light coursed from horizon to horizon. Below he could see they were just now crossing a massive ravine, through which coursed the Humboldt River. This is where I was going to have us jump off anyway, he yelled, over the thunderous womp of the dragon's wings. Are you ready? Of course not, Nicola yelled back. She wrapped her arms around his neck, nearly choking him. Do it anyway. A Pinkerton's ocular blast shot past him. Already the Never Sleeps had reached the driver's car. Already they were climbing across the lizard's back in pursuit. Fuck it, he said to no one in particular. He planted his foot on the skull ridge between the dragon's hate-filled eyes and leapt over its snorting nostrils. 
The expanded field of magic annihilation from the chrysalis met the psychic resonance of the ley line and confronted it with its own impossibility. And in that instant, it ceased to exist. The enormous dragon did not need the ley line in order to fly, of course. It had wings for that. But the enchantments cast on the ten train cars it towed required interactions with the line to stay aloft. And when the lay that cut through the Sierra Madre abruptly winked out of existence, the train plunged like a ponderous chain into the canyon below, dragging the screaming, spouting dragon down with it. Leslie hit the water first, dislodging Tesla from his neck. Even the breathing apparatus built into the chrysalis could not keep the wind from getting knocked out of his chest. Gasping, the first thing he did was unhook Tesla's resonator from his waist, for he could feel it overheating, trying to burn a hole in his side as he fell. As he pushed it away from him, he saw, out of the corner of his eye, and what little light could be stolen from the murky brown by his goggles enhancements, Tesla's curls trailing behind her as she sank, unconscious, into the blackness. At the same time, out of the corner of his other eye, the shadows of the dropping train cars blotted out the surface of the river above him. Then a great invisible hand swatted him out of the way, just as the train crashed into the water in the exact spot where he had been. The river vomited him upward onto a stony heap of slate in a shallow narrow. He watched the Li Yinglong dragon crashing down atop the heap of compartments jutting from the water. The worm wriggled and ripped its way free of the damaged harness, then sprang into the sky with a breathless shriek of terror. It disappeared with frantic flaps over the nearest peak, the two dragons that had brought the army of Pinkertons instinctively chasing after it. Leslie spotted Tesla lying face down in the water near the edge of the shale bar, sputtering and coughing. He raced to her and picked her up from behind, gripping her abdomen and forcing her to cough up as much water as he could. He saw bits and pieces of the resonator floating past on the current, and he realized what had happened. The device overheated and exploded, creating a shockwave that hurled its creator and him to safety. We've made Adamus synonymous with murderer and anarchist in the headlines, Morgan Ash chuckled in his ear. Thank you so much for providing the newspaper's pictures to match. The bodies of Pinkertons floated everywhere around him as glass-ravaged passengers splashed out of the train through shattered windows and took turns in desperate dives below the surface to rescue those trapped in the two or three fully submerged cars. He burned with regret and nearly dropped Tesla to dash and help them. But descending all around him were never sleeps and all-seeing eyes. Their stunt had killed many, even most, but not all. Not enough. And when Simon Leslie had torn off the resonator, he'd exposed the breach in the chrysalis to the outside air. He might as well have torn it to shreds for all the protection it provided him now. The Pinkertons knew it, too. They were just waiting for Ash's orders to boil his blood, to turn his skin inside out, and dump his organs out onto the river rocks like wet sacks of garbage. For what it's worth, I'm sorry it had to end like this, see? Ash said. As I'm sure you are, too. The eyes closed in a tight circle around Leslie and Tesla. Don't tell me what to think, you printing ass. This is exactly how I wanted it to end. Ash's mahogany chuckle. See, see. Cocky little shit to the last, huh? Oh, no. I'm serious. Don't you read the guidebooks? A gust of wind howled through the canyon. The Neversleeps hesitated, spinning their great ocular globes in extra few revolutions. You ever hear about the Donner Party, Ash? Wendigos! Somebody cried, but it was too late. The cannibal spirits dropped from the edges of the ravine, their spindly arms spread out to envelop the Pinkertons like a net. Jaws retracted to head width and sank themselves into the meat and bone of the Pinkertons, ignoring the ectoplasmic eyes. 
One never sleep was able to blast a Wendigo with a mana missile, but he was immediately dropped with a claw swipe from behind. Leslie could feel Tesla tense beneath his arms, and he pulled her close to him, hoping he could seal off the breach in the chrysalis with her body. Not enough to fool the sophisticated spells of the Neversleeps, but to confuse the primitive senses of the Wendigos. One came near Nicola, trailing long, straggling corpse hair, and sniffed her cheek with his noseless skull. But Leslie put a gloved hand over her face, hoping that would make her partially invisible to the cannibal spirit. With a snort and a dissatisfied shake of the head, the Wendigo turned, spotted a Pinkerton with his left leg ripped off below the knee, trying to crawl across the crimson-choked river to safety. The spirit gave up on Tesla and launched itself atop the fugitive and commenced to feast. Better luck next time, Morgan, Leslie said, but silence was his only reply. He ripped the receiver out of his hood in case the bosses figured out how to track that too, and keeping Tesla close to his body, fled up the ridge through the pines to safety. At dawn, they stumbled across a ghost town on the side of the mountain, pale gray timber shells like giant wasps' nests. It had been settled since its abandonment, as one might expect, by ghosts, mindless revenants acting out the routines of life, children chasing hoops, women hanging invisible clothing on non-existent lines, men fighting in the streets over long-dead causes. Inside the largest intact structure, half-burned and festooned with meadow heath, Simon Leslie ripped off the chrysalis in a stream of self-muttered self-denunciations. Tesla watched him with a furrowed brow. Whatever is the matter? What? He looked at her, astounded and naked, sweat slick on muscles still taut for battle. Did you not see what just happened? How many innocent people did we kill with that stunt? Tesla shrugged. The train couldn't have been traveling more than forty-five, perhaps forty-eight kilometers an hour. I'm sure there were far fewer fatalities than you think. One is unacceptable. You hear me? One innocent life is far too many. She laughed at him. You are trying to remake the world, Edison man. How did you hope to accomplish that without blood and thunder? You think our enemies give one thought to these innocents of yours, whoever they are? We're supposed to be better than they are. We have to be. Otherwise, what's the point of any of it? An exasperated sigh exploded out of her. My great-granduncle had a laboratory in Colorado Springs just after the awakening. You heard of it? Yes. He was conducting wireless telegraph experiments, before magic rendered them obsolete, of course. No, 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 no. That's just what the Inquisition wanted everyone to believe after they arrested him, and he burned. He was working on the wireless transmission of energy. My uncle wanted to generate free power for all, everywhere in the world. That's what scared them, not the science, not the difference of philosophies, whether faith or facts is a superior basis for living. The people who run the world have no use for such trivia. All they want is control. That is why you are better than your enemies, Edison man. Not because of your body count. Because you are fighting for what is real and true and natural. The world behind their veil of lies and superstition. The common man, the worker, the peasant does not need oracles and magicians to get ahead in that world. All she needs is what she was born with. That's what makes us different, Edison man. That is what makes us different, she jabbed a finger into his bare sternum, and that is why we will win. Simon Leslie couldn't stop grinning. I think I love you, Nikola Tesla. I would not be surprised if you did. I'm quite attractive by conventional standards. She turned away from him and began to remove her still soaking blouse and her dress to wring them out. Soon they would both be naked inside the burnt, empty building, chests heaving, breath not yet caught. 
He heard a sound and looked into the corner of the room. They must have been in a former saloon, for the ghost of a guitar player sat on an invisible crate. He stared at nothing and moaned out a song. I'm, I'm coming home Cause I feel so alone Coming back home In my dear old Soon, however, the sun had risen all the way, and the light crept in through the open doorway. The phantom faded with all the others, burned away with the morning fog. It's well known that Nikola Tesla and Thomas Edison had an intense rivalry, and we are fortunate it never rose to this level in real life. Thank you, Fred, for this amazing blend of Western, alternate history, steampunk, and fantasy. Before we wrap up this week, our fearless leader, Tony Smith, would like to share a few words. This is Tony C. Smith, host of Starship Sova, and, well, I guess you call us as well the boss of District of Wonders. And I thought I would get on to Farfetch Fables just to, you know, wish us all, you know, a great and happy new year for 2016. A big, big thank you to Nicola, Gary and Mark for producing one of the best fancy podcasts out there by a long shot. Do you know what I mean? You listen to it and you kind of listen to, you know, others that are kind of in there, that scope, and it's just staggering what they've done, what they've achieved. So thank you so much to them. But it was also to kind of reach out to, you know, our listeners in Farfetch Fables and just to kind of, you know, it's, I'm going to be doing this, you know, a number of times throughout the year, just to come round the pews with me can, rattling it to ask for donations to kind of keep, you know, Farfetch Fables up and running and keep, you know, the tales and the starships over. We have got, uh, you probably know now, but we have got a Patreon page and this is the kind of, I'm not saying anything nasty is going to happen to Farfetch Fables, but we've got to have sometimes a reality check. When we kind of just kind of keep on, you know, doing it for free without the kind of help and support. Farfetch Fables is growing, and it's growing at a bit of a staggering rate, to be quite honest. And it needs kind of funding. Do you know what I mean? It it it, it has to to kind of survive. And like you say, we've got a Patreon page. It's all there. Come over and help with This is, you know, a plea from everyone who kind of, you know, is involved with Farfetch Fables, help her out and look after her, you know, make sure Farfetch Fables is going right through the year and, you know, many more years in the future. You know, it's, you can come on to Patreon, it's next to nothing to kind of put a little bid on there, and not a bid, but a little token of appreciation and a monthly donation. And it really would make a difference. Do you know what I mean? It's as simple as that. Keeps this show going and that's what we all want. So, like I say, I'll be doing this a few times, you know, throughout the year, just to kind of give you a little nudge and make sure that, you know, you're doing your best to help the shows out. So, until then, listen, thank you so much. You know, and people who have already, you know, are on Patreon, Farfetch Fables, what can I say? Do you know what I mean? Big hugs. Thank you so much. And thank you, Tony. 
Please remember that Farfetch Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it all you like, but don't change it or sell it, and be sure to give credit where credit is due. All other copyrights remain that of the authors. Violators will be pursued by a posse of no less than 20 gunslingers and subject to frontier justice. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our shows, you can leave your comments on the Triple F website, our Facebook page, or on Twitter. It's been a real pleasure hosting this week. Next week, Nicola should be returning with two new fantasy stories. In the meantime, I hope you have a wonderful week. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 